This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. Hello, I'm here at EWAS in Liverpool with Matt Taylor, who is the project scientist for the ESA Rosetta mission. I believe we've had you on before. I believe so. (laughs) (laughs) But for those that haven't met you or listened to you before, um, do you want to tell us quickly a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. I'm a space plasma physicist, basically, so I'm a little out of place here because I normally focus more in the heliosphere and planetary aspects. My job in the European Space Agency as a project scientist is to be the liaison between ESA and the scientific community to ensure that the scientific community gets the science that they want from the missions. And I've been involved and still am involved in the Rosetta mission. So for just sort of background story on the Rosetta mission, I believe it was launched in 2007 and then... Oh, 2004. 2004? Yeah, yeah. And then... Yeah, so basically it was a mission to the Comet 67P, Shumov-Gerasimenko, which is a Jupiter-class comet, so it's got an orbit going out to, to Jupiter. We launched in 2004 and took 10 years to get to the comet because it's difficult to go deep space. And yeah, the last, I would say, probably three years, well, since 2014 when we arrived at the comet, were uh, exciting and stressful. And I'm, I think I took the last year. So with the mission, mission ended in 2016. So I, I think I took 2017 to recover. And, and many of us did recover, hopefully, from, from the, uh, the roller coaster ride that it was. So operations went ahead and we did all of the stuff that we wanted to do and more. And some things didn't go right, some things went right, some things uh, were unexpected, some things were expected. And now we're in the process of ensuring that all the data is secured away in the archive so anyone can look at the data, anyone can do the science that was the reason that we sent Rosetta to this comet. Okay, so what was that science? What, what were the main scientific objectives? Well, this was to, to characterise this comet, to really get an, un, an understanding of how comets work, because all previous missions to comets have been flybys, very quick little snapshots, and then you go from quite great distance. Rosetta was designed way back in the 80s, in fact, when Giotto was flying past Comet Halley. Already then it was identified that this was the thing we needed to do. We needed to sit next to a comet, because a comet's a very, very active object. When it's close to the sun, it's very active, so the ice within it sublimates, and you get this, the formation of these fantastic dust and gas tails. When it goes further away, it becomes rather inert. We wanted to see how that process worked. So that's what the investigation was really focused on, and... Well, let me let me step back a bit. The comets are kind of uh, alongside the other small bodies of the solar system, like asteroids, are like the leftover bits of the formation of the solar system. So looking at those gives you an idea of what went into the solar system at the beginning. So I would say some of the great stuff that's come out of Rosetta is at the, at the molecular level, like the stuff that's come off, some of the gases indicate, well, constrain the formation mechanisms of, of the solar system itself. So one example I'll jump straight with, is the discovery of molecular oxygen on the comet or within the comet, which was a massive surprise because oxygen is a very friendly molecule. It likes to get with other molecules. Finding oxygen by itself, it's only possible to be there under certain situations. And you extrapolate backwards and it then constrains how the comet was put together, the temperature of the, the dust and gas cloud that was there before the sun was formed. So there's stuff in the comet that predates the formation of the sun itself. So... That's, I find, quite mind-blowing. So it's really giving you this view back into the beginning of the solar system and what, what the situation was like there. So does this have implications on, say, for instance, the origins of water on Earth? Or- well, that's another, another one of the things that we were looking at uh, at 67P, where you have this, this view. Well, we believe that the 
water on Earth, or the Earth was devoid of water in, in, in the early phases, something must have brought that back. And we were looking at asteroids and comets as maybe being the most viable delivery mechanism. From what we found with Rosetta and 67P, the water on the comet was nothing like that that we find on Earth. How so? so? We would look at the ratio of uh, heavy water, or deuterium to hydrogen, and doing that comparison shows that for this particular comet, and we, we group that with other comets, it's very different. It suggests that that measurement or that ratio, um, that flavour of water, suggests that the comet was formed very, very far away from, from the sun. So going back to the you know, delivery of water question, it suggests that comets aren't really a major delivery mechanism. We don't believe they are. However, there are other things that we found on the comet, in particular some of the noble gases. There's a, a set of xenon isotopes that we can really look at and, and use as a kind of tracer and a marker. And the stuff that we find on the comet is very similar to that of the atmosphere of the Earth. So you can say, well, maybe water wasn't delivered, or that much water, but there are other things that were delivered that could have supplied a significant amount of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and then when you find glycine, so a, a precursor of proteins, on the comet as well, maybe comets delivered some of the more um, complex stuff that then went on to become life. So they're a way of potentially delivering the building blocks of life to our early Earth. Okay, so and, and these comets are definitely from within our solar system. There's no, there's no way that they could be sort of a, a moi-moi type. Well, no, not, no, not, well... Actually, some of the other discoveries we've been looking at, really, the comet is so unsolar-like. When you look at all of these, uh, the sulfur, the silicon, the, the xenon, and all, they don't look solar. But it also then links to there are some other observations of I've forgotten the name of the constellation now. Sorry, my brain's gone. But um, it's been a but, long week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but looking when we, and so this is the thing you can you can take the, the Rosetta, our solar system uh, observations, and then compare them to other planetary or, or, or young star systems and we have made observations we the, the community of these uh, protostellar or protostellar protoplanetary nebula and you have this very irregular mix of dust and gas around early in early systems and that might be what happened in our solar system it was a wasn't a nice homogenized mix it was all over the place it was lumpy some dust was of a certain size in one part of the solar system and different in another part and that's well, that's the nature of science, I guess, that what we're finding is that it wasn't as easy as we thought it was or as simple, the formation processes, and that there was a bit of a, a weird mix of stuff. So going back, to, right, we don't think that this is an alien object, but it's indicating that some of the, the more simple ideas of how the solar system formed need to be rethought, and you can actually connect these measurements and these observations to other planetary systems as well. So that's, that's the broad, broad base impact of uh, Rosetta, is that you've got in situ in the solar system that you can compare to other astronomical observations as well, which is nice. Okay, I'm going to ask you about the what I think was, for the community at least, the most nerve-wracking part of the mission, mm -hmm. which was the bounce. Right. Um, yeah. how, how did that happen? How did it feel? Um, <laughs> well... <laughs> um, it's a long time ago now, but I, I have to say, trying to stay positive through that entire week was very difficult, but we were. It was kind of, there was a feeling that it was going to work anyway. The reason uh, Phil I didn't stay where it was supposed to, you can go in different directions here, um, <laughs> but it, it was good that it didn't. Well, one thing, yeah, I'd say that it's good that it didn't remain where we targeted, because where we ended up was actually much more interesting from a scientific point of view. When we eventually found the lander and took the, that final image in September... 
there was no dust on it, so it's giving us another indication of the weirdness of this cometary object, that some places had loads of dust delivered, other places didn't have any. There was no dust backfall. In fact, if Philae had stayed where it was, there's a high likelihood that it would have got completely covered with dust backfall. Right, okay, so yeah, it was nerve-wracking. We had three ways of securing ourselves to the comet. There was a gas thruster on the top of the spacecraft to try and push it down whilst it was firing harpoons, and he had some mechanical eye screws as well. We knew the night before that the gas thruster wasn't going to work, but we thought, well, we'll deliver it anyway, given this set of criteria, and the harpoons will stop it from disappearing back into the uh, ether, as it were, space. The harpoons didn't work, and so that's why we got the bounce. Luckily, some of the, the mechanics of, of the system reduced the momentum enough to stop it from flying off completely, but we skipped about a kilometre across the surface of the comet. The reason we believe the harpoons didn't work was if you go out, you get some fireworks, and you leave them outside or, you know, in your garden for 10 years uh, and then try and light them, <laughs> they might not go off. So we think what it was is the long space voyage uh, for 10 years affected the pyrotechnics that's effectively what it was and, and there was already some investigation just prior to the landing in the pyrotechnics and the fuse mechanism to try and see what needed to be done because we had some ground-based stuff that we'd left on the ground to test and it looked like that's probably what happened it was just basically a damp powder for want of a better phrase if the fuse didn't trigger properly but as i was saying and waving my hands a lot about we ended up somewhere much more rich, I think, and it just added to the story that was Rosetta, the fact that we had this, that the lander was stuck in a ditch, we didn't get an image until the month before we ended the whole mission. And that ubiquitous image that I received on a, on a Sunday night from one of my colleagues and Chechi Tubiana, who works on the camera team, she... She found that. She was poring over the data, and then there's this the, the fantastic story of her finding it, they're rushing into work at MPS, and that percolation of that information within the team, me getting it on my phone in the evening and waking my wife up and going, they found it, and then getting so excited because we'd been looking for it for that long, and that, that is the only image that we got because it was, it was a crazy time when we were spiralling down towards the comet at the end of September 2016. The gravity of that object is so weird that we had a, a three-day fixed orbit, and depending how we were overflying through uh, our perisenter was dropping down to about two kilometres from the surface, it would affect the orbit period by up to 20 hours in one direction. So we had to correct that. So we tried to stay as close to three days orbit period as possible because I think at the time it was something like half an hour one-way light time. We were doing everything ahead of time, programming our operations ahead of time. So to have a time shift in, in that meant that you'd be taking an image or a, a measurement at the wrong time and wrong place. So that's why we had to fix it like that. That's why it's actually so challenging to get that image when I give my presentation, I show, I think, an orbit before that image that we got. We were offset. This is rubbish for a, for a podcast. <laughs> we might cut this. We a might square. not. <laughs> if, if this is your image and you're looking in the middle, we were completely off-center by a, a good few degrees because of this shifting. And then there was a frame about 20 seconds after, and it was when the comet had rotated a little bit and the spacecraft had moved, and you could actually see the lander legs sticking above the horizon, as it were, but you couldn't still, you couldn't say that's definitely a lander. Nobody would believe that. Then we got that one. It's nothing but the lander. And then that was it. We, we weren't able to capture another image for, for various reasons. So yeah, there's, again, it's, it just adds to that 
narrative that, that, that was Rosetta. It's so did you get all the data back down from Philae yeah, now? Yeah, from Philae we got, we got everything that we expected and from Rosetta we got everything that we expected and that's the key, that's the ongoing activity. So yeah, we finished in 2016 but we are continuing our activities with Anissa at least up until September next year. The teams out in the community are still working on this getting the data in the archive as I said at the beginning so that everyone can use this data and it's it's been a long and difficult task because it's difficult data to get processed and calibrated in a really good way okay so just finally looking beyond Rosetta have you got anything plans ESA wise or have you got any missions that you're particularly looking forward to seeing well, I mean, the big one for me is because I work at STEC in, in Nordvik in the Netherlands and we have Bepi Colombo in-house and it's about to leave to go to the launch site at the end of this month. It's going to fly out in four Antonovs and a massive barge from Rotterdam as well. That to me, that's a cool mission, although, you know, it gets launched this year, but then it's going to take six or seven years to get to Mercury. That's a really nice looking spacecraft, so that, I'm quite excited about that. So that's a Mercury lander? No, it's a Mercury orbiter. There's two spacecraft. One's a magnetospheric type mission, one's more of a a planetary mission. And it's a collaboration with the Japanese Space Agency as well, which adds, I think, an extra dimension to this. It's fantastic to have this international collaboration because that's what it's all about. Okay, so that's, from from an ESA perspective, what I'm interested in. But I'm I'm not involved in that mission. I'm waiting for management to give me something to do. And, And we see... Well, we know in the ne- within the next month they're going to down-select some missions for study at the M-class level. And there might what be is some- that? What's so M-class? Right, sorry. you've got M, L, S. But they're all different cost caps for different missions. So Bepi Colombo is more like an L-class. Solar Orbiter is an M-class mission. So they're about five, six hundred million is an M-class budget, roughly, depending on which call it was. So that kind of size mission is there'll be a call for a mission, what was the M5 then? We just had the M4 down selection, so the Ariel mission was selected, which is going to characterise exoplanet atmospheres. As I say, so next month, May time, we'll find out some more studies that will go be put in for about two years and I might be put on if there's a suitable mission I might be involved in one of those. Uh, Gunter Hassinger just gave a presentation here at EWAS and also spoke about F-class missions which are smaller ones but what they'll try and do is they'll add them to the launch of these M-class missions to get a launch for free so there might be some interesting possibilities there and he was mentioning the possibility of this being focused on maybe the planetary area so the, the planetary science so there's some stuff for me to do and keep me busy I think. All sounds very exciting. Matt Taylor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening to me warble on after the conference dinner as well. (laughs) 